All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will put the text up on our screens behind me in just a moment. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text for the morning up on your screen when we get to that point. Um, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we actually really enjoy giving them away around here. Uh, and this week, we actually got a big old package in the mail of 60 brand new hardcover Bibles. Uh, normally we give away the cheap paperback versions, but uh, we found some money for Bibles and we were like, hey, let's buy some Bibles. And so we did. Um, and so if you don't have a Bible of your own, I can actually fix that and I can fix that pretty, pretty handsomely right now. Um, while you are turning to 1 Corinthians, um, I we had like a uh, work day up here yesterday, uh, and and so I want to take just a second to say thank you to the people who showed up. We had about 20, 25 people here yesterday knocking out all kinds of projects, and so some ceiling panels that had some some rain stain on it, uh, where we have leaks in our roof. Uh, those those panels got replaced. A bunch of people raked out flower beds and painted stuff, and and uh, Jim got in there and hooked up a, a, an emergency light, uh, and, you know, messed with all kinds of electricity, and didn't die. So we're good. All right, and so uh, you gotta wonder with him sometimes, but you gotta you gotta watch that guy. Um, but yeah, so we fed a bunch of people pizza, and so it was a good day. So those of you who were a part of that, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our building is in better shape. We 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 acted as good stewards of our stuff uh, yesterday, and so. Um, Man, I, I think God blessed that, and I think he's going to continue to bless that. So we are a few weeks now into a series that we've been uh, kind of working on for you know a few weeks, but it's going to be a long series. Uh, we're taking a slow, kind of leisurely walk through uh, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, um, though we're calling our effort through it beautifully upside down. There's, there's the artwork for it. You see the, the kingdom sandcastle thing coming out of the sky and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the reason why we're calling it beautifully upside down is because I really think that that's kind of Paul's main thesis for this letter. It's kind of his main point of emphasis, and it's kind of shape everything he's going to tell the Corinthian church. He's going to spend a lot of time walking uh, the, the followers of Jesus in Corinth through countless upside-down realities of God's kingdom. But, but I think he's going to do so in a way that forces them to ask the question, okay, but is it beautiful? Those are things that are going to strike them as awkward, maybe strike them as confusing or unwise. It's going to strike them as maybe the exact opposite of what the rest of the world is chasing after. But I think he's calling them and, and disciplining them to, to lay that aside for a second and simply ask the question, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? Corinth was a church that Paul knew incredibly well. Backwards and inside out. Um, we, he, he spent a lot of time in Corinth. Uh, if you want to call him this, he was a, the first pastor there. There, He helped to start the, the church in Corinth until God called him to leave there and go somewhere, somewhere else and start a new work. And, and so Paul knows this church as well as anybody can know this church from a distance. He knows exactly what they struggle with. He knows exactly what the culture of the city is and, and what that culture is going to, to struggle to make sense of when it comes to, to, to the distance connect between it and God's kingdom. He knows exactly where the conflicts lie. And so Paul is going to lovingly, we've said, address this problem head on. And we've used the analogy a couple times now over the last few weeks of, of a surgeon going directly after the tumor. They get out the scalpel and they cut away. 
And a scalpel has to do damage in order to fix the problem. They, they cut strategically in order to bring healing. And Paul's aim in 1 Corinthians is no less than that. He's going to cut strategically in order to bring healing, in order to bring wholeness, in order to bring health. And, and so there are some things in this letter that the Christians in Corinth are going to struggle to hear. In fact, there's a lot of things in this letter that the Christians in Corinth are going to struggle to hear. They're not going to like it, but they're necessary. Just like cutting out that tumor is necessary. They're, they're necessary to address. And Paul's looking to shape them into how God would have them see and have them value and have them make sense of the world around them. And, and these things that they struggle with, they're in the way of that. And so they've got to go. And so what, what makes this though extra special for us is that the culture that we're living in in 21st century uh, America isn't a whole lot different from 1st century Corinth. Sure, there's a lot of things that are very different. There's a lot of stuff that's not the same at all. But the core level premises and the values driving these two cultures, I think they're more alike than not. I think they're more alike than not. At, at the end of the day, pretense was your golden ticket to fame in Corinth. That's how you elevated yourself. That's how you gained some kind of clout. If you could entertain the crowd, even if it was just for show, you were a big deal in Corinth. If you could impress people with your experience and pull them into your story, you were someone who deserved a voice in Corinth. You, you, carried, uh, you carried somewhat of a, of, a, of, a, of a bestowed status, I guess you would, you would call it. It was something that ought to be gifted to you if you could pull people into your story and hold that crowd's attention. It's not unlike our culture at all. We see that become more and more prevalent every day in our world. The problem, though, is not that our culture and Corinth's culture have some similarities. The problem, though, is that God's kingdom doesn't seem to work that way. It doesn't seem to work that way at all. God doesn't do pretense. He's not impressed by that. He's not fooled by that. I don't think he cares. And last week, we closed out our time with with Paul spelling out the calling that God placed on him during his time in Corinth. His job, he told us, he told us was to simply preach the gospel, right? Strip away all the extra fluff, all the extra stuff, and just preach. Paul's got a pastor's heart, and he, he sees his people, and he knows that eloquent wisdom was too highly valued in Corinth. It was a, it was a distraction for them. It was something they, they chased after instead of the foundational things. And so rather than a help to them, it was something that harmed them. And so Paul's calling was to preach the gospel in its bare-naked simplicity. That was his job to do. And by doing that, by removing all the non-essential fluff, Paul's gospel presentation was forced to lean on the power of the cross alone. He was forced to lean on this irreducible kernel that can actually save people. Strip away the pretense and just give me the gospel. But I think a really important question to ask is why? right? Like, why would, be, why would Paul be called to, to such a task, right? I mean, if eloquent wisdom can be helpful, like, why wouldn't you use all the tools in your bag? Like, if it can be a good thing, if it can be something that, that, that adds flavor to and helps to make sense of the gospel, why wouldn't you choose to use that? Doesn't it seem smart to use that? 
I mean, let's be honest. The whole cross part of the story is not always the easiest thing for people to swallow. What if, we, what if we downplayed that a little bit and worried about this other stuff over here for a little while? Wouldn't that help us? Would it make sense to pretty things up just a little bit and some good-natured, eloquent wisdom? Or do you think that maybe this is one of those upside-down realities that we're going to see play out over and over again? <laughs> probably, probably the second one. And we're training ourselves to ask the question, okay, but is it beautiful? If the answer is yes, then we keep pressing in and we trust that God's going to bless that, right? So you ready to pick it up where we left off last week? 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul calls it folly. So what's a, what's a folly? I mean, it's not exactly a word that we use a lot in our world. What, what's a folly? We might sometimes use it in our culture just as a, as a synonym of a mistake. Right? I, I, when I do hear it, I tend to hear it in that context. A little, little foible, a little slip up. But mistakes are, are oftentimes innocent. Not always, but sometimes they're incredibly innocent. A mistake is just a mistake. And a folly carries a much darker tone than that. Much more negative tone than that. A folly is a mistake that happened because of arrogance or recklessness. It shouldn't have happened, but it happened because you weren't doing your job. It's a tragically wasteful thing, and it's worthy of mockery and contempt. And the Apostle Paul says that that is exactly, that is precisely how those who don't know Jesus yet look at his cross. That is exactly how those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is exactly how they see his death on a Roman cross, folly. It's laughable to them. It's not merely rejected. It deserves to be ridiculed. It's ridiculous. Crucifixion in the first century Roman world was typically reserved for traitors and non-Romans. In a lot of circles of society, you, you didn't even talk about it in public but just because it was just uncouth. If anyone of notoriety was crucified, it was done so for the specific reason of, of shaming them. It was intended to make an example out of them. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's why the Jews, in Jesus' death narrative, I think that's why they demanded that he was crucified. To execute him wasn't enough. It was an intentional effort to bring public derision upon Jesus and anybody who might be dumb enough to follow after him. Get, don't just get rid of him. No, ground his legacy into the dirt. That was their aim. The cross is the very last place in the Roman world that anyone would ever look for a leader. It was the last place where someone was supposed to find something honorable. And so, outside of those who know Jesus, like how do you really expect people to, to view his death on the cross? Like what, what do we assume ought to happen to those who don't? know him how should they see it 
Paul says it's folly to them. It's foolish. One might even dare to call it upside down. And this is why I want to be really slow to ascribe some kind of spiritual warfare to situations when, when, when God's people are persecuted or insulted. It's not because the, those things don't exist. I totally believe that they do. It's just that, like, how else do we expect people to respond? Like, we ought to have seen it coming. Contempt is a natural reaction when you see something that's contemptible. It's what people do. And the Bible seems to consistently teach that we, that we really ought to expect this kind of reaction from people who don't know what we know. Like, we ought to assume that that's how they're going to respond. That's the default, not the other. I think that this is why Jesus says things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? They're clueless. They don't know what they're walking into. They don't see the beauty that's there. And that's, that's true today. That's, that's true a couple of millennia ago in Paul's day as well. Those, those walking in dark, darkness, they don't merely reject the light. They mock the light. There's a pretty famous piece of graffiti from the late 2nd century. It's currently at the Palatine Hill Museum in Rome. It's officially called the, the Alexa Menos Graffito. Um, so if you want to Google it later, that's what you're going to type in, Alexa Menos Graffito. Uh, but most people, though, just call it Alexa Menos Worships His God. Uh, I think i got a slide available. Um, it looks like this. Wait for it. No, you're good. Man, look at that artwork. There it is. Alexa Minos worships his God. Uh, there, there's nothing fancy about it. It's just a really crude carving into plaster of, of a couple of guys, one on a cross and some Greek text, really, really sloppy Greek text underneath that says Alexa Minos worships his God. Uh, Alexa Minos is the, the one on the left there with hand raised. Uh, maybe he's singing or praising or whatever. And then obviously Jesus is the one on the right hanging on the cross. But if you'll notice, Jesus has the head of a donkey. Bold choice, right? Um, and if you're wondering, the answer is yes. That means exactly what you think it means. It means exactly, in the first culture, what it means to us today. Whoever's trying to, to make fun of Alexa Menos there, uh, they think that him worshiping a crucified Savior is utterly ridiculous. And that needs to be pointed out to the world. In fact, let's all have a turn laughing at Alexa Menos. They think it deserves to be mocked, that, 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 that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It always has been, and hear me, church, it always will be. There's no golden age. The cross has always been and it always will be folly to those who are perishing. Um, there's an, an incredibly naive trend, I think, that seems to pop up again and again over the years in, in Christian circles and uh, that we can somehow position ourselves in, in some kind of culturally respectable place that, that, that one of these days we'll finally get to a place where uh, we'll be able to figure out how to articulate the gospel in such a way that, that, that those who don't need know Jesus yet will go, oh, yeah, I like that. That's a great idea. You should, you should totally follow that. Uh, it's not for me, but I think you're smart. I think you're wise. That's, that's a good way to look at the world. But not only does this ignore 2,000 years of Christian history, it also ignores explicit statements from God's Word. 
The cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, Paul says it is the power of God. The power of God. God is using that seeming folly to accomplish absolutely massive things. He's using it on purpose to do something that the world can't even make sense of. But, but God's not flying by the seat of his pants here. He's not kind of just making this up as he goes. It's actually always been his plan to work through the folly of the cross. And Paul points that out by quoting Isaiah 29 here. Look at verse 19. He's going to quote Isaiah 29. He says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So let me, let me be very clear if it wasn't clear to you before. The cross is not God's plan B patch job. He wasn't dealt a bad hand and had to come, figure out a way to make the best of it. God has been loading the barrel for this moment throughout all of redemptive history. This was always coming. People misunderstand this all the time. The cross is not some cosmic accident. God didn't look away for a second and go, oh, where'd that Jesus get off to? It's not some next best option out of a badly dealt hand. The cross is the fulcrum of God's eternal plan to save a people for himself and thereby glorify himself forever. It is the hinge on which his plan swings. A plan that has existed from before the foundation of the earth, the Bible tells us. And according to both Isaiah and Paul, that plan includes the active undoing of all those who think that they are wise. He will not simply stand in their way. He will thwart them. He will destroy all that they believe to be wisdom. He's aiming for it. That sounds kind of mean. Why would God do that? I think I prefer the nicer version. Why would God destroy all other competing wisdoms? Because even though we've been throwing around the term all willy-nilly so far this series, I've got some news for you. God's kingdom is not the one that's upside down. It's not. God's kingdom is not the one that's upside down. It's the kingdom that we find ourselves living in. God's kingdom may seem backwards to us. It may seem upside down to us. It may seem unwise to us or old-fashioned to us or whatever to us, but that's only because we've been flavored by the kingdom we're surrounded by. We're looking through that kingdom at things that aren't like our kingdom at all. And so any kingdom, any kingdom at all that's birthed after the fall is going to be stained by sin. Full stop. No nuance necessary. They're all broken. And yes, especially the one we call home. They're all broken. Any kingdom birthed after the introduction of sin into this world is going to be shaped by that sin. It's going to be defined by that sin. It's going to have its values and its ambitions fueled by that sin. And there's only one kingdom in the cosmos that predates sin itself. God's got a lock on that one. All the others are sad little copies. And God has been promising from the get-go what he's going to do with all the upside-down and sin-broken kingdoms of this, of this world. 
If you haven't read the Bible on your own before, I'll give you the answer if you haven't heard it. They're going to meet a violent end. All the competing kingdoms of this world and the wisdom that they try to package with it will meet a violent end. And hear me, they need to be put to death because those competing kingdoms are nearly as wise as they think they are. They think they're wise, but they're not wise. Look at verse 20. Paul asks, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the, po- Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul starts out by asking, hey, where are all these supposed wise people I keep hearing about? I, I thought there was supposed to be some kind of, kind of, some kind of stable here of, of, of wise people I'm supposed to be impressed with. Well, where are they? And he names two groups specifically, scribes and debaters. And he does so for an incredibly important reason. The scribes were experts in, in the Jewish law. The, the best modern-day analog we could probably uh, use is to think of them like lawyers. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not an exact copy, but it's really the best that we've got if you want to try to picture something. Um, but, so the scribes were, were experts in, in the Jewish law, and, and, and so they were well-educated. It was literally their job to, to copy the, the scriptures all day long and to settle the issue if anybody ever had a question about something. They were the experts that you went to. They were the ones who knew it backwards and inside out. So, so why, would, why would Paul point to, to that group here in his question about where the wise people are? Because if anybody, if anybody at all could figure out their own way into his kingdom through religious study, the scribes were your group. You and I don't have a shot compared to those guys. When it comes to religious study, they were the guys that could get it done if anybody at all could get it done. They were experts in the Old Testament. God's word to his covenant people. If anybody should see the answer in the scriptures, it's them. And throughout that word, God is constantly telling them what he's planning to do and how he's planning to do it. And still, they missed it. Still, they missed it. And that ought to teach us something very, very valuable this morning. It takes more than expertise. It takes infinitely more than expertise. We need to be given eyes to see. The debaters are the other group Paul names, but they're in the same boat. We talked at length over the last few weeks about this elevated culture of logic and this elevated culture of rhetoric in Greece and specifically in Corinth. Uh, but uh, public debates were, were all the rage there. But, but Paul looks around at them and he, and he sees them for what they actually are. And so if anybody, if anybody at all could figure out their own way into to God's kingdom through diligent reasoning, surely it's you debaters. I mean, surely you got a lock on this when nobody else has a lock on this. Tell me what you know. 
But whether you're walking the lofty intellectual path or you choose to walk the pious religious path, the reality is that both paths are wholly insufficient. Neither path will get you into the kingdom. Neither of them work. And what we need to see this morning is that is by divine design. That's on purpose, the way that rolls out. God drops a bloody cross in the very middle of his grand plan to reign forever. And the wisest of all debaters see that as some kind of gigantic folly. Why? Because it's laughably beneath any notion they have of a king. A king would never do that. A king would never submit themselves to that kind of nonsense. What are you talking about? So what do they do? They bow out. They dip. God drops the same bloody cross into his grand plan to reconcile sinners to himself forever and the most pious religious followers. They see that as a stumbling block. Why why would they see that as a stumbling block? Because it's an offense to their own self-made righteousness. It can't be earned And it can't be reciprocated. It can't even be maintained. It must be received by faith and faith alone. And so what do they do? They they, they bow out. It's folly and it's a stumbling block. The crucified Savior is an intentional hurdle placed in front of all the kingdoms of this world because by it, those kingdoms are left bare and they are proven to be impotent. It's on purpose. Gather together all the smartest folk you want and all the the, the strongest people you want to gather up and God would still do circles around us on his worst day. And that's if, you know, you want to imagine for a second that he actually has those. He doesn't have worst days. He doesn't have foolish or weak moments. But if he did, we would still lose by a landslide. To preach Christ crucified It's not some vulnerable moment in an otherwise culturally celebrated gospel. It is the perfect plan of God to separate his sheep from his goats. It's a dividing line, and it's put there on purpose. It's an on-purpose culling of those who don't have eyes to see. But then, as verse 24 tells us, to those who are called. Called. No matter what people group you're a part of, Jew, Greek, New Englander, somewhere in between, to those who are called, that bloody cross is the power and the wisdom of God. It's going to be seen as upside down by most of the people in the room. But for those that God is calling out, They see the cross for what he intended it to be, is what it really is. It's beautiful, it's good, it's true, it's eternal, as everything else around it fades. As everything else around it fails. The Greeks in Corinth, they had forgotten that reality. 
They lost sight of that. They had, they'd allowed wannabe kingdoms to creep in and try to, try to present themselves as equal, let alone viable. They're not even viable, but to present themselves as equal or better than is laughable. It's a true version of folly. The Corinthians, they, they'd forgotten what it was that, that called them to Jesus in the first place. And so Pastor Paul takes the opportunity to remind them that in verse 26. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. All right, so we've said it half a dozen times now. Paul loves this church enough to call them on their nonsense, all right? That, that's what his aim is. He's going to get out the scalpel and he's going to cut deep in order to, to bring healing to them. And so he's going to call them on their absolute nonsense here. He goes, now wait a second, I was there when you met Jesus. Who do you think you are? I know you. I know what house you grew up in. I know what your family is like. I know what you valued here, here, and here in your timeline. I know you. Why are you desperately trying to present yourself as something you never were? Remember your calling. You're not who you present yourself to be. National Baptist, I, I, I know I'm insufficient for the duty, but can I maybe try to take just a brief moment and try to be as good of a pastor as Paul was? in earnest love for you both individually and for us corporately. And uh, let me just go ahead and say something out loud. We're not awesome. Eh. We're not. We're not awesome. And I know that doesn't sound like good news. I, I get that. But I promise you, by biblical standards, by biblical definitions, it's actually a giant compliment. We're not awesome. And it's good news because God never called us to be awesome. That's not what he asked of us. In fact, if you want to make an argument for anything at all, he seems to, to call us to be the opposite of awesome. He doesn't want awesome. He wants the broken. He wants the contrite. He wants, he wants those that appear foolish. He wants those that the world thinks are weak. He wants those that the world thinks are lowly and despised. And listen, I know that you can walk out these doors this morning and find any number of churches that will tell you that you are awesome and that you are special. But based on 1 Corinthians 1, I, I really don't understand that logic. I'm not sure they read it. I, I don't understand why we'd ever try to lie to ourselves and play that game. It's not who we are. I love, hear me, I love that God has brought us together like like he has, I, I think we're awkward and scrappy. And I promise you, that is a compliment. I love that about us. And and also truly think that God's going to use that for his glory. I don't doubt that for a second. I, I think he's going to take our awkward scrappiness and he's going to make his name famous because of it. But that's not just my theory on the matter. It's actually God's explicit plan for his church. Look at verse 29. So that, time out. We have a means and an end situation here, right? There's a purpose 
for which God calls out the lowly and the despised, the, the foolish and the weak. There's a purpose for why God calls those and unites them to himself and brings them together as a church. There's a reason that God is going to do things exactly this way. And so what is the reason? I mean, it's worthy of celebration all on its own, right? I mean, isn't it good news that God would bring us, the rejects, in together as a part of his family? That, that's, a, that's pretty worthy of celebration. But if that's only a means to a greater end, what is the greater end? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Those of you who know your Bibles well are probably thinking Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 right now, right? It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's almost like God's cosmic plan for redemption is carried, con- carried out consistently throughout the New Testament. Who knew? It's the stumbling block of the cross all over again, right? He, d- he doesn't leave you any room to add your peace. He will not leave you any room to add your peace. Well, why not? I mean, I think I have something pretty awesome to offer. I think I have something valuable to to bring to the table. No, you don't. No, you don't. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the, the, the God of the heavenly host. He was and he is and he is to come. You struggle to figure out what to wear this morning. Did I wear this last week? Yeah, I think you wore that last week. He doesn't need anything from you. Not not one bit. You don't have anything to offer back to him. You have nothing to offer an infinite God. And even if you did, you don't, but even if you did, he refuses to share any of the credit with lowly old you. He's bigger than that. When God loves the lovely, I think think you're kind of left with the impression that maybe they deserved his love. That he owed it to them in some manner. But when God loves the unlovely, you and everybody else that's watching gets the clear picture of just how gracious and loving he is. So Paul says in verse 30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord from front to back church from front to back jesus came to complete our salvation he is our wisdom he is our righteousness he is our sanctification and he is our redemption So while the world around us tries vainly to elevate themselves and exalt themselves and make much of themselves and boast in themselves, we have a Savior who's both capable of accomplishing the task and is actually worthy of the boasting. He's actually worthy of such boasting. And so Paul commands us here, boast in the Lord. Celebrate Him. Consider your calling. Let us look on our Savior in faith and let us Freely boast in the one who will be worthy of all praise and adoration long after all the wannabe kingdoms of this world are gone and forgotten. Let's celebrate him. 
And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that's our response to God's word today. We celebrate a a sober-minded celebration that that first accounts for the incredible grace that, that you have received and then turns around and explodes with thanksgiving. That's the kind of celebration that's called for. In a second, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to put action to that response or whatever response that God's stirring in your heart. I'll, I'll be down here if you want somebody to talk to. If you're watching us online, you can use the, the contact form in, in the video description. But listen, maybe you need to respond to him in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to, to be obedient to, to Jesus in baptism, or maybe he's calling you to, to, to join this church family, or maybe, just maybe, he's calling you to say yes to the call of service or mission that he's laid out in front of you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out. Welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, you can respond to God's word today by, by meeting Jesus. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages, the thing properly earned for sin is death. The Bible assumes that we all by default are separated from a holy God from, because of our sin. The thing owed for that sin is death. And, and listen, you, you can do the math. An infinite debt owes an infinite payment. Romans 6.23 also says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But how does that work? It works by the folly of the cross. The stumbling block. Jesus came. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. He soaked up the wrath that was owed to you and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now he calls on you this morning to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And I get it. Utter utter folly to those who are perishing. Yep. God knows. He did it on purpose. A stumbling block to those who think that they can make their own way. Yep, God knows. Did it on purpose. But it is the power of God to save those who have been given eyes to see. And so maybe, maybe you're ready this morning to respond to Jesus' gospel call. Today's a good day to do that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'd love to be helpful to you if you want somebody to talk about it, but however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's run, respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for First Corinthians and for an upside-down kingdom that's really not so upside-down. God, turn us over so that we see correctly. Turn us over so that we chase the right things and value the right things and assume the right things and love the right things. My heart wants so desperately to cling to the kingdoms of this world, but they can't last. They're fading. And what's worse, they're, they're broken by sin and, 
defiant of the true king. Remove my grip from those things. Help me to trust in in a cross that everyone else thinks is foolish. Help us trust, help me trust in a in a God who does the foolish thing out of love for me. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see? Would you turn folly into rejoicing? I think you're big enough to do that. Save people today. By your grace, call them into your kingdom. Let us see it and celebrate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.